Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, my name is Zach Tromley, and you're about to listen to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails. This is the Versailles Anniversary Project, and we're at episode 42. If you haven't listened to episodes 41 and below, maybe go and listen to that. Otherwise, you won't know exactly what's going on here, what Woodrow Wilson was doing in the United States, who Woodrow Wilson even was, or exactly who Henry Cabot Lodge was, and what his reservations were all about. This detailed episode is possible because you guys support this podcast so well. Whether it's monetary support or moral support, it all means so much. And I couldn't do it, literally could not do it, without your guys' support. Trust me when I say, when you're belting out the episodes as I am lately, and these ones are especially long, I realise, it makes all the difference when I know you guys are waiting for them, and also when you guys are helping me spread the word, and also just letting me know that you're enjoying them. It really does make such a difference. So, thanks so much for that. It seems a bit bizarre to say it, but if you just cannot get enough content from Zach Twomley, if you would like more content in your life, then make sure that you go over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. For $5 a month, you can get an hour of extra content every single month. For $1 a month, you could get the Louis XIV's Arms and Armies series. So if some extra information on that kind of subject is what you'd be interested in, then do go and check that out. You could even be very naughty about it and sign up for one month and then cancel after one month. And then you will, well, you won't be charged every single month and you'll get all that lovely juicy content 
straight to your door, or your ears in this case. Patreon is the best way to support this podcast monetarily because it helps form a large part of my income. And of course, I couldn't do this podcast in the detail that I do it in if I didn't have it as my job because most podcasters are doing it as a hobby and it's not their job. And as a result, it takes them longer to go into detail on things and they wouldn't probably spend this much time looking at a specific subject, a specific topic that normally gets only about three or four sentences in a textbook. See if the following sounds familiar to you. The First World War happened, it ended, the people afterwards made the Treaty of Versailles, and it was really bad, and then the Second World War happened because of it. That's pretty much what textbooks say, and that's what I was taught during school, but I've since learned that the truth is not only different, it's also much more interesting. And we're all about bringing the truth out there in this world of anti-truth that we're living in these days. As I said, though, yes, for $5 a month, you can access more content. Do you want to know about what happened during the Suez Crisis? Then by all means, do sign up, and that will be delivered straight to you. I know for a fact that I have a listener base all over the world, and it starts with people talking about this show and spreading the word organically by word of mouth. That's why podcasts are so successful, and that's why people like to talk to each other, because that's the way humans work. We like things spoken, we like the spoken word, we learn best from the spoken word as well. So, by all means, tell people that there's this crazy guy from Ireland who talks non-stop about things that normally don't get any attention in textbooks, but he's able to talk about it because his history friends are so fantastic. I know I'm rambling on loads, it's mainly because I'm very afraid to start this episode because it's so long and I was lecturing this morning and I'm very tired, but I do enjoy it too much to just leave it aside. It's time to hear all about Henry Cabot Lodge and his pesky little reservations. Well, they were pesky at least to Woodrow Wilson, the guy who we've all come to know and love, or at the very least, know. So without any further ado, let's get started.
You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 42. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 42. In the last episode, we spent a very long time looking at what happened during the Paris Peace Conference in the last two weeks of February. Here, as the name suggests, we're going to switch our focus to around the same time, late February, early March, but looking at the American side of things. It's a very important aspect of the story of the Treaty of Versailles, mainly because the Treaty of Versailles was rejected by Congress. And because that happened, the United States never joined the League of Nations. And because that happened, Britain and France were kind of like, but Woodrow Wilson, it was your idea. And Woodrow Wilson was kind of like, yeah, I know, but they won't let me join. So sorry, looks like you guys are out by yourselves. Thus, the League of Nations wasn't as strong or as important as it could or should have been, and thus, it wasn't as effective when it came to stopping disputes. You can make your own mind up about whether or not that would have stopped everything that came later, but either way, it's a hugely significant moment, and because of that, it's important we understand what was going on in the States while everything else was going down in Europe. All of the cats might have been away, and the mice might have been doing some amount of playing, but what were the cats actually doing while they were away? Well, one cat in particular is of interest to us. So today we're looking at Woodrow Wilson and his experience in the United States. And it shouldn't surprise you too much to learn that Woodrow Wilson's stint back in the United States had not been particularly successful. He had failed to woo his counterparts in the Republican Party, an essential task if the Treaty of Versailles was to successfully pass through Congress. Worse, Woodrow Wilson had come across as arrogant, preachy and inconsiderate during his delivery of the League of Nations Covenant. Wilson failed to soothe the fears of the opposition, and he also failed to reassure them that this brave new concept, the League of Nations, would not interfere with the American Constitution, nor would it supersede the rights of the President or Congress to pursue its own policies. Wilson refrained from appeasing these fears because he was so single-minded in his pursuit of the League, but also because he remained unsure about how to apply many of its elements himself. However, it would be unfair in the extreme to cast all blame for the ultimate failure of the Treaty of Versailles onto Wilson's shoulders. While he was far from the perfect man to bring this groundbreaking treaty forward, the merits of the idea spoke for themselves, and the genuine popularity and favour shown by Americans towards the League of Nations further underlined this point. We are thus confronted with the question of why, if the League was a popular idea in the United States, why did it fail to be ratified in Congress? This process was confirmed in March 1920, when Congress voted against joining the League, but before that date, rumblings between the different sides had been heard. These different sides, will be interested to hear, were far from as clear-cut as Republican versus Democrat. Instead, our analysis of the different sides must begin with the man who, a century ago, delivered what would later be seen as the most significant attack upon the League of Nations Covenant, and consequently as the fatal blow to Wilson's vision. The fight to ratify the Treaty of Versailles and the League therein was not lost when Henry Cabot Lodge delivered his reservations speech, but the odds had certainly, by this speech, been stacked in favour of the so-called irreconcilables. The Irreconcilables being the name given to those congressmen who hated the very concept of the League and who vowed to do all in their power to hamper and block its passage. What makes this story and the person of Henry Cabot Lodge all the more interesting is that debate which asks whether Lodge was in fact among the foremost pro-League Americans that could be found 
Or was the opposite the case? The answer is not as clear-cut as you might think. We are, as you may have suspected by now, wading into several grey areas. On the 28th of February 1919, Lodge presented reservations which he held towards the League of Nations Covenant as it then stood, but many historians suspect that by this point, Lodge had already determined to sink the League, and that he believed by bringing forward these reservations, he could achieve that. In this episode, we're going to do our best to, first of all, investigate Lodge's reservations and place them in the context of 1919 America. Second, we'll examine the wider American responses to the League and the level of actual support for it. Finally, we'll examine the evidence which points to Lodge's true stance and therein assesses his true responsibility for the failure of the League. For those disinterested in American history and eager to get back to Paris, I urge you to try and accept this detour as a chapter of Wilson's experience of the peace conference in general. If it is debatable whether this incident represented the beginning of the end for Wilson's vision, then what is not up for debate is that we cannot possibly begin to understand the president without first understanding the country that he ruled. This country and its opposition politicians, it is often forgotten, played a pivotal role in shaping the post-war order and their contributions, negative or otherwise, should be acknowledged. The occasion of Lodge's reservations was perhaps the most difficult part of this experience for Wilson so far, because he could find nobody as opposed to his ideals as those that existed within Congress, and consequently no other figures other than congressmen who held so much power to disappoint his ambitions. I had a great time researching and writing this episode, and as you can see, it is one of the longest in our listing, coming just after an also very large episode. You should know that it also took the longest of any other episode to research and write. So far, that is. By the end of this episode, you should have a good appreciation for the nature of Wilson's defeat and what it meant for his prospects in Paris. You should also be able to appreciate the fact that it was not all the President's fault. Flawed though he was, he did face considerable challenges which proved in the end too much for even him to overcome. We will assess everything from Henry Cabot Lodge's partisan motives to his surprising grasp of what we would appreciate as neo-realist principles, to also his additional motives which are often swept under the proverbial rug. We will begin, as indicated above, with an examination of each of Lodge's 14 reservations. It was probably no accident that Lodge now had his 14 reservations, where Wilson had had his 14 points, but these were certainly of a different character than the President's document had been. I should clarify that the Treaty of Versailles contained the stipulations for the League, so when the Senate voted to reject the Treaty of Versailles in March 1920, they were also voting to reject the League. And in fact, the League was the major reason why the Treaty of Versailles failed to receive the ratification it needed from the Senate. For our narrative, we will be referring mostly to the League, but on some occasions we will have to fast forward a bit, to the point where the Treaty and the League were opposed as a bloc, whereas in our timeline in late February 1919, it wasn't yet certain what form the final peace with Germany would take, and while a covenant for the League had been drawn up, its final form had yet to be cemented. This, of course, provided some opportunities for Lodge to establish what his bones of contention towards the League were, and thanks to Wilson's presentation of this covenant to Congress in his tour, Lodge and his colleagues all knew what articles the League would contain, at least this version of the League that was the most recent. Wilson had provided them with the roadmap. Now it was up to Lodge and company to delineate the different bumps and sharp turns which they were opposed to. After this very long cautionary introduction then, 
I think we're at last ready to visit the occasion where, 100 years ago, Lodge presented his historic reservations. We don't need to list verbatim each of Henry Cabot Lodge's 14 reservations, but we should provide a summary of each so that you know where the source of his opposition was based, so let's begin that task now. First, Lodge stated his objection to America's indefinite league membership. The United States, Lodge insisted, must be allowed exit the league whenever she liked, through a concurrent resolution involving the assent of both houses, and in that event, not even the president would be allowed to stand in the way. This point was obviously symbolic and designed to send a message to Woodrow Wilson. Second, the most sensitive issue, that of the United States engaging in collective security operations, was then addressed. Lodge insisted that the US should never be obligated to intervene in conflicts which were not of her concern. Articles 10 and 11 of the League provided for these obligations, but Lodge insisted here that only Congress was entitled to bring the country into war. Third, the US should not be obligated in any way to take on the responsibilities of a mandatory power and would be entitled to reject mandates if they were foistered upon her. Lodge was evidently concerned that America would be forced to cater for some far-flung backwater of no strategic interest. Fourth, Lodge declared that it was the right of Congress to determine what was or was not within her jurisdiction and that any issues pertaining to American interests, be it to do with the drug trafficking or immigration, was up to America and not the League to sort out. Fifth, the Monroe Doctrine, that policy document from the previous century which entitled America to defend its interests in Latin America, was to be defended and placed under no threat by the League's operations. Sixth, the United States was again to be under no obligation to interfere in the event of war between China and Japan. Seventh, it was the prerogative of Congress and nobody else, even the President, to appoint delegates to the League. Eighth, only by approval from Congress can the League make a ruling or interfere within German-American trade relations. Ninth, the United States was not obligated in any way to pay money to the League, and she could not be compelled to provide economic assistance to its member states. Tenth, the United States was entitled to build up its military forces at any point it desired, and would not be beholden to the military limitations of the treaty. Eleventh, it was said that if a member of the League was found guilty of violating its key tenets, the United States would not have to cease trading with that state and could follow its own policy line. Twelfth, nothing within the treaty should interfere with the United States' Bill of Rights, and no citizen should have their rights affected by it. Thirteenth, ruled that any organisations which the League created in the future could not demand American participation, and that only Congress could determine which new organisations or league institutions that the United States would join. Fourteenth, and finally, Lodge put forth a reservation designed to protect the United States against the influence of a larger community of states, as this point absolved American policymakers from having to adhere to a ruling wherein more than one vote from a similarly-minded group of states was cast. It is difficult to avoid the impression that this reservation, although it sounds long-winded, was directed at Britain and its Commonwealth, which many Americans feared would outvote the American position by voting as one single bloc, rather than individually as a collection of states. So what do you make of Lodge's reservations? Some would say they were fair enough, and that Lodge was here inserting insurance clauses which would guard America from unfair or unforeseen circumstances. Others, in particular Woodrow Wilson, 
argued bitterly that Lodge's reservations missed the entire point. The League, indeed, was not perfect, and neither was the Treaty of Versailles which included that League, and which Wilson brought home in the middle of July 1919. However, as Wilson expressed to Joseph Tumulty, his private secretary during these years, the implementation of these reservations would so nerf the League as to make it pointless. On the 25th of June 1919, Wilson wrote to Tumulty just before the Treaty of Versailles was due to be signed, saying that, My clear conviction is that the adoption of the treaty by the Senate with reservations will put the United States as clearly out of the concert of nations as a rejection. We ought either to go in or stay out. To stay out would be fatal to the influence and even to the commercial prospects of the United States, and to go in would give her a leading place in the affairs of the world. Reservations would either mean nothing or postpone the conclusion of peace, so far as America is concerned, until every other principal nation concerned in the treaty had found out by negotiation what the reservations practically meant, and whether they could associate themselves with the US on the terms of the reservation or not. There was a real danger, Wilson believed, that in accepting these reservations, and in accepting special treatment for the American membership, the League would come to resent the American presence, and Americans would view their participation as something less than the noble exercise it was. As Tumulty himself expressed, Wilson viewed the constitution of the League not as a perfect piece of writing, but as the best which could be offered to a broken world, and as something which could be changed in time. Tumulty wrote, To his mind, the reservations offered by Senator Lodge constituted a virtual nullification on the part of the United States of a treaty which was a contract and which should be amended through free discussion among all the contracting parties. Wilson did not argue or assume that the Covenant was a perfect document, but he believed that, like our American Constitution, it should be adopted and subsequently submitted to necessary amendment through the constitutional processes of debate. He was unalterably opposed to having the United States put in the position of seeking exemptions and special privileges under an agreement which he believed was in the interest of the entire world, including our own country. Furthermore, he believed that the advocacy for reservations in the Senate proceeded from partisan motives, and that insofar as there was a strong popular opinion in the country in favour of reservations, it proceeded from the same sources from which had come the pro-German propaganda. Before the war, pro-German agitation had sought to keep us out of the conflict and after the war it sought to separate us in interest and purpose from other governments which we were associated. Classifying Lodge's reservations as some form of German propaganda was certainly a step too far, but this demonstrates again how bitterly Wilson resented those that disagreed with him. Yet historians continue to investigate Lodge's motives and his sincerity when proposing these reservations, especially considering his consistently changing mind and his public changes in perception towards the purpose and responsibilities of the League. The increasingly partisan atmosphere of the League debate, which Tumulty discerned, also had to be factored in. A somewhat explosive question is that which asks whether Lodge proposed the above reservations because he genuinely believed that there was a need for them, or whether he put them forward because deep down he wanted to sink the entire League idea, and he believed that only by suffocating the League with reservations like these would it in the end be forced to fail? How would proposing reservations or amendments to the League cause it to fail, you might be wondering? Well, the more opportunities that Lodge gave his colleagues and counterparts to debate his points, 
the longer it would take for the league to pass, and the more ammunition sceptics would be able to draw by examining the problems Lodge already had with it. Furthermore, because he loathed Wilson, but also knew him quite well, Lodge suspected that the President would never agree to any adjustment of the League Covenant as it stood in spring 1919, and thus any attempts to propose reservations or adjustments to the League would not only fail owing to Wilson's stubbornness, they would also paint Wilson and his supporters in a negative light. The League failed to pass, Lodge and his supporters could claim, not because America wasn't ready for it, but because Wilson refused to compromise with Congress and refused to listen to his senators, just as he had failed to do before. In support of this idea, we should consider the record of Senator James E. Watson, who wrote in his memoirs in 1936 and who recalled conversations he had had with Henry Cabot Lodge. Watson, as an irreconcilable, uh, in other words, a man wholly opposed to the League of Nations, vented his spleen to Lodge, and Lodge's reply, if indeed it is correct and accurate, represents dynamite in the historical record because of its implications for changing our understanding of Lodge's motives and behaviour. Watson recalled the scene, which he opened by exclaiming to Lodge his woes and concerns about the League, saying, I don't see how we are ever going to defeat this proposition. It appears to me that 80% of the people are for it. Fully this percentage of the preachers are right now advocating it. Churches are very largely favouring it. All the people who have been burdened and oppressed by this awful tragedy of war and who imagine this opens a way to world peace are for it and I don't see how it is possible to defeat it. Lodge then turned to me and said, Ah, my dear James, I do not propose to beat it by direct frontal attack, but by the indirect method of reservations. What do you mean by that? I asked. Illustrate it to me. He then went on to explain how, for instance, we would demand a reservation on the subject of submitting to our government the assumption of a mandate over Armenia or any other foreign country. We can debate that for days and hold up the dangers that it will involve and the responsibilities we will assume if we pursue that course, and we can thoroughly satisfy the country that it will be a most abhorrent policy for us to accept. Senator Lodge then went on for two hours to explain other reservations and went into the details of the situation that would be thus evolved until I became thoroughly satisfied that the treaty could be beaten in that way. We will speak more on Lodge's character later on in the episode, but I should emphasise an important point, that the question of passing the League was not a simple case of Republican versus Democrat. The loss of Congress did not guarantee that Wilson would automatically lose the League or the Treaty of Versailles, but it did make his mission that much more difficult. There were, of course, figures from the Republican Party who were strongly in favour of the ideology behind the League, and who urged their colleagues to support it, even though it came from the pen of the President, for the sake of the higher ideals which were at stake. Perhaps the most notable of these was Elihu Root, a former US Secretary of State, a member of the American League to Enforce Peace, and a fascinating man whom we unfortunately do not have more time to investigate further. Indeed, the idea for the League of Nations had not emerged from nowhere. In 1828, an organisation, the American Peace Society, was established, and what was one of its primary aims? A precursor of the League, with this desire expressed in the following manner during one of its opening statements. We hope to increase and promote the practice already begun by submitting national differences to amicable discussion and arbitration, and finally of settling all national controversies 
by an appeal to reason, as becomes rational creatures, and not by physical force, as is worthy only of brute beasts. And this shall be done by a congress of nations, whose decrees shall be enforced by public opinion. Using the journal World Affairs, which many of us may well have come across in our travels, the American Peace Society, the views and plans of the organisation, were brought forward and heaped scorn upon war, even as warfare seemed to grow in acceptance. Upon the outbreak of the Great War, the American Peace Society did not relent in its quest to promote the cause of peace, and its leading lights remained transfixed on the power of public opinion as a resource to promote peace. During a rally for the American Peace Society in spring 1915, one of its keynote speakers exclaimed, The great campaign in which we are engaged is nothing more than a campaign of education in which physical force as such finds no place. There is a factor other than physical force that controls mankind. It controls mankind within those small groups which we call communities. It controls mankind in those larger groups which we call nations. It will ultimately control mankind in the largest group of men and women, which we call the world. This factor is public opinion, and if the past belongs to physical force, or largely to such force, the future will belong to public opinion, or largely to public opinion. The focus on public opinion here in 1915 is quite topical for us, because the assumption is often put forward that the League of Nations failed to pass in Congress, and Woodrow Wilson's dream floundered because the American public did not desire it. This, in fact, could not have been further from the truth. It was also untrue that Congress was evenly divided between the yeas and the nays, several groups ranging from all for it, to for it with some adjustments, to desiring of more adjustments, to totally against it, existed. It was broadly true that the people of America and of Europe were with Wilson, as the President had hoped, yet he had failed to account for the fact that the people did not vote on legislation as momentous as the Treaty of Versailles. The people of America were for Wilson's League and for approving the intervention of the United States in such an organisation, and we know this thanks to polling data from American newspapers at the time. What is more, we are also able to deduce that a majority of American newspapers were with Wilson's vision as well. The Literary Digest conducted a poll of newspapers in April 1919 and found that 718 were for ratification, 478 were for ratification with conditions, and only 181 were against ratification. The ratification with conditions option may leave us scratching our heads. What conditions were suspect? Well, as our investigation into Lodge's 14 reservations demonstrates, there were several areas where Americans, be they citizens or officials, could feel concerned at the sweeping powers and controls which would be handed over to the omnipresent league. But some Americans thought bigger than even the world they lived in and the best solution for its woes. One example is given where the historian James Lancaster examined the extensive support which Protestant churches in America provided for Woodrow Wilson's League, writing that Those of liberal theological persuasion saw in Woodrow Wilson's vision for a new world order a moral issue comparable to the abolition of slavery or the prohibition of alcoholic drink. Through the National Committee on the Churches and the Moral Aims of the War, the Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America worked during 1917 and 1918 to stimulate both public and official acceptance of a world organisation to ensure peace and maintain the liberal principles advanced by the President as the basis for the American war effort. Protestants who believed that the League of Nations would be 
the Organisation of the Christian Idea of Life launched their campaign to help make it a reality following Wilson's departure for Paris. The period from December 1918 to the signing of the Treaty of Versailles on June 28, 1919 was the formative phase of their involvement. The polemical phase began with Wilson's return from Paris and ended with the Senate's first rejection of the treaty on November 19, 1919. From then until the final vote on the treaty on the 19th of March 1920, the Protestant efforts on behalf of the League display their confusion and desperation in defeat. While the Protestants worked to support it, other congressmen worked to undermine it, and another historian has examined the correlation between anti-League sentiment and those living in the South. This historian, Dewey Grantham Jr., noted that 18 Southern Democrats voted against Wilson during the final Senate vote for the treaty in March 1920. What was more, only five Democrats from outside of the South voted against the Treaty of Versailles at the same time. It is important to get to grips with how one's perspective on the League might have been skewed depending on which state one hailed from. Though it is obviously not enough to pin the blame or approach the question of the rejection of the League through Wilson or Lodge alone, and certainly not on the Republicans. Thinking objectively, American participation in the League would be a drastic transformation of her foreign policy, and would effectively prevent her policy makers from following the traditional cycle which swung back and forth between isolationist or interventionist depending upon events taking place in Europe. The aversion towards the war which was so strongly felt essentially led Americans in turn to feel one of two things. All Americans believed that the war had been an unprecedented catastrophe and that a second round had to be prevented at all costs, but some believed that this placed responsibility on Americans to help prevent it, so let's join the League of Nations, while others believed that this meant that Americans had to avoid becoming entangled in Europe at all costs, so let's not join the League. Membership in the League of Nations would not just limit America's freedom of action, as it would for every member state, it would also prevent her from withdrawing into isolationism as she had done before. In addition, some were concerned that the League might actually be incompatible with the Constitution and would compromise some of the country's most cherished freedoms. In time, a great deal of attention would be focused on those articles dealing with American responsibilities in the event of war and when collective security would be called in. We've already seen that Lodge's second reservation sought to address this by absolving the United States of any responsibility to make war on some disturber of the peace. In particular, these issues were dealt with by Articles 10 and 11 of the League of Nations Covenant or Constitution, which read, The members of the League undertake to respect and preserve, as against external aggression, the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all members of the League. In case of any such aggression, or in case of any threat or danger of aggression, the Council shall advise upon the means by which the obligation shall be fulfilled. And Article 11 says, Any war or threat of war, whether immediately affecting any of the members of the League or not, is hereby declared a matter of concern to the whole League, and the League shall take any action that may be deemed wise and effectual to safeguard the peace of nations. In case any such emergency should arise, the Secretary-General shall, on the request of any member of the League forthwith, summon a meeting of the Council. There was some apprehension felt towards these articles because of the potential they had to interfere with American foreign policy and force American soldiers into wars that they had no interest in. Consider also how many anti-League Americans felt about American involvement in the recent war. 
It had been a European war of no direct interest to them, and its outcome had provided them with no net benefits. This belief would grow among isolationist circles in the 1920s and 30s, in spite of the facts, which plainly illustrated that America was inherently pro-war by the time the declaration was made in April 1917, and that Germany had by then done more than enough to provoke her involvement in the conflict. Some narratives which appeared in the subsequent years painted American involvement in the war as a grave mistake and expressed the view that war could only be avoided again if America's hands were not tied to an institution which did not have her interests close to heart. What was more, optimistic observers believed that Europeans would never willingly repeat the experience of the war anyway and that America did not need to tie itself to a world peace organisation when it held most of its views close to heart in any case. Why not pursue a bilateral relationship with the League instead, but keep America safely outside of its trappings? That was a key question. In a previous episode, we saw how a Democratic senator from Massachusetts, David Walsh, changed his stance from pro to anti-League, thanks to the influence of the large Irish and Italian-American populations in his constituency. The pressure from these groups, in addition to German, Hungarian or even Bulgarian-Americans, may have applied as lobbyists against the adoption of the League, as a means of spite due to the failure of Wilson and others to treat fairly with their countrymen back home. This is a complex and multi-layered question which is badly in need of proper investigation. By that I mean exactly how much of an influence did these expatriate Americans, these German, Bulgarian, Hungarian, Irish or Italian etc, how much influence did these Americans have on the failure of the Treaty of Versailles to pass? It is very difficult to ascertain where Henry Cabot Lodge fits into all of these arguments. It is often assumed that Lodge opposed Wilson's League because, in his view, it was short of what it needed to actually properly function. Lodge was therefore content to propose his reservations, akin to specific demands, which must be met before he or his supporters would fall in line with the President's vision. On the contrary, the story goes, Wilson refused to adjust the League's makeup in any way, shape or fashion, thus forcing two very stubborn men and bitter enemies into a political slugging match with one another, and since neither gave way, neither man got what he wanted, and the irreconcilables, those that wanted nothing to do with the League, won out in the end. On the other hand, there are those that believe that Lodge was a Republican Party stalwart, and once Wilson returned to the United States with his League plan, Lodge committed himself to oppose it because he believed a win for Wilson would mean a win for the Democratic Party. Lodge's view of the League as a partisan issue was only supported, it is said, by the fact that Wilson made it unnecessarily partisan by refusing to welcome any senior Republican senators into the American delegation, preferring to do all the work himself in Paris. Consequently, having felt ignored, Lodge and his supporters worked day and night to destroy the League, out of the belief that victory in this quest would discredit Wilson and pave the way for a Republican triumph in the presidential elections. Before we go into it though, it's worth asking you, what do you think? Does the conventional explanation make sense to you? Was it truly the case that Wilson wouldn't compromise, that Lodge wouldn't either, so neither man got the league that he wanted? Do you feel that it was more likely that Wilson's arrogance and ignorance or hurt Republican feelings were to blame? Or do you think that a revisionist interpretation of what went down, and one which views the entire episode as an example of the partisan nature of American politics, is more realistic? Perhaps you even think it's a mixture of all these things put together. Whatever the case, let's investigate what the historical record tells us and try to get to the bottom of whether Wilson ever stood a chance 
and who or what we can pin most of the blame on for killing this vision in its cradle. Something which we should be aware of is the fact that Henry Cabot Lodge had changed his mind about the need for a league publicly in the past. During the early years of the war, Lodge had stood side by side with the likes of Wilson and Taft when advocating for some kind of League of States which would work to uphold peace. Speaking in 1915, Lodge exclaimed, In differences between nations which go beyond the limited range of arbitratable questions, peace can only be maintained by putting behind it the force of United Nations determined to uphold it and prevent war. A year later, when he shared a platform with ex-President Taft, President Wilson and other advocates of an international league at a meeting of the first annual National Assemblage of the League to Enforce Peace, Lodge repeated these ideas. At this meeting, Lodge even made a speech declaring that The limit of voluntary arbitration has, I think, been reached, and the next step is that which the League proposes, and that is to put force behind international peace. We may not solve it in this way, but if we cannot solve it in that way, it can be solved in no other Wilson may have been forgiven for thinking that he had an ideological ally in Lodge, yet by 1917 the fiery Massachusetts senator had changed his tune to confess that When I first began to consider it some two years ago, it, the League idea, presented some great attraction to me, but the more I have thought about it, the more serious the difficulties in the way of its accomplishment seem to be. The historian David Mervyn, writing about Henry Cabot Lodge's influence upon the League of Nations, continued this analysis of Lodge's changing mind, saying, The senator went on to argue that a League of Nations would involve making war on any nation which does not obey the decisions of the League, while in his Union College speech in 1915, Lodge had praised the utopianism of the League proposal, the senator now spoke harshly of this virtue turned vice of the dangers of plunging blindly forward, misled by phrases and generalities, into undertakings which threaten worse results than the imperfect conditions now existing. As we have seen in 1915 and again in 1916, Lodge had argued that only a limited range of questions could be made subject to arbitration, but in 1917 we find the senator proposing, as an alternative to a league, the further use of voluntary arbitration. What this means is that Lodge had essentially flip-flopped back to his old position, rejecting the premise of the League as an arbiter and returning to his original position which upheld that voluntary arbitration, often manifesting itself as the invitation to a neutral third party to mediate in a dispute, was the best tactic. Interestingly, as David Mervyn discerned when investigating Lodge's change of mind a bit further, that it was at some point between May 1916 and January 1917 that Lodge underwent this change. What could account for the change of mind in such an experienced and knowledgeable expert of foreign affairs such as Lodge was? Certainly not, Mervyn believes, an epiphany which revealed to him exactly how difficult making the League would be. No, for Mervyn, the answer revolves around Lodge's partisanship, more specifically the fact that Wilson, contrary to the expectations of many, secured a second term as president in 1916. When he did that, and when Lodge realised that the proposed league would not be shaped and controlled by a Republican president, he essentially withdrew his support. This, of course, suggests that Lodge's support for the league was not so strong to begin with, if these partisan considerations could factor so heavily into his calculations. As Mervyn wrote, It is not unreasonable to assume that Lodge's abrupt change of mind on the league 
was the first of a series of shrewd technical manoeuvres aimed at preventing Wilson from emerging as the maker of peace and reading the enormous electoral benefits that would surely follow from this. Well then, we may be wondering, if Lodge was so dead set against the League and wished to prevent Wilson from gaining the fame which would follow a successful political campaign, why didn't he simply oppose it outright and join the ranks of the so-called irreconcilables within the Republican Party who wished to prevent the establishment of a League at all costs? The answer, Mervyn deduces, is that Lodge again detected which way the wind was blowing and it seemed to be blowing in the direction of popular opinion. To oppose the League unconditionally would have seemed like an immensely unreasonable stance for Lodge to take, and it would have portrayed this veteran of diplomacy and his party as inherently partisan at a time when greater principles were said to be at stake. Also, don't forget that because the League and peace with Germany were bound together in later months, a policy of outright hostility towards the League would mean that, by default, Lodge and company opposed a final peace with the enemy. This tactic would certainly have backfired, and could have provided endless PR ammunition for the Democrats. So Lodge chose a middle-of-the-road approach, which soon presented some potential benefits all of its own, as David Mervyn noted when he observed that, By adopting this middle position on the League, Lodge placed himself and his party in a strategically strong position. Within the party, neither irreconcilables nor internationalists were totally alienated and in the country, the Republican leadership could be presented as pursuing a statesmanlike course of moderation, in contrast to the extreme alternatives, idealistic internationalism and reactionary isolationism. Historians are still not united, and probably never will be, over the question of exactly how limiting Lodge's reservations were. But answering that question is important, because it reveals the extent of Lodge's anti-league feelings which seemed to have been grounded mostly in partisan moves. If Lodge's reservations were not that limiting, and they didn't compromise the key premise of the League, then one could argue that Lodge did want the League to succeed, and that his motives were sincere. Yet, if the opposite is true, and if Lodge's reservations had the potential of undercutting the League, then it follows that the opposite is true in the case of Lodge's sincerity as well. There is thus a lot riding on Lodge's reservations, but it is, at the end of the day, a matter of interpretation. In his books examining Wilson's mission and legacy that he left behind, the historian Thomas A. Bailey, writing in the 1940s, believed that historians had been too critical of Lodge's reservations and too willing to accept Wilson's point that the reservations nullified the entire League. David Hunter Miller, a member of the American delegation present at Paris, who left us his diary and can be seen in many respects as America's answer to Harold Nicholson, observed that For as far as the Lodge reservations made changes in the League, they were of a wholly minor character. They left its structure intact and they would have interfered with its workings not at all. But this minimal interference in the workings of the League was not even how Lodge himself saw the reservations, as he wrote to a friend with some indignation that You talk about mere reservations, as if they would have no effects. I am afraid you do not understand the nature of a reservation fully. Such reservations, as we should adopt, would take the United States out of the treaty entirely on all points where we wish to refuse obligation. To drive the point home, several anti-leaguers also weighed in on the debate at the time, with one commenting that the reservations would have driven a coach and four through the League of Nations and made the obligations of the United States thereunder almost minimal. 
another figure focusing on Article 10, or in other words, that point which obliged the United States to become involved in wars during a collective security exercise, expressed the belief that My conception of the original Lodge reservation to Article 10 is that it freed us entirely from the obligation. I tend to side with the latter point of view, simply because Lodge's reservations granted the United States a get-out-of-jail-free card, which no other member state of the League would have had. Lodge's objections, I believe, can be explained mostly by partisan motives. Mostly, but not all. And I'll come back to the other motives in a little bit when examining Lodge's objections from another point of view, that of neorealism. Back to that reservation towards Article 10, though, and we need to bear in mind, as if it needed repeating, that the whole point of the League was to guard against war by attacking those that broke the peace. This was meant to be a last resort, of course. Public opinion and the value for peaceful relations was supposed to lead the way, but the threat of force was also supposed to keep the system in check, and the combined power of its numerous nations were meant to serve as the final layer of protection against a repeat of the Great War. Let's look at Lodge's second reservation to see just how far-reaching and conclusive it was on the issue of collective security. The second reservation read, The United States assumes no obligation to preserve the territorial integrity or political independence of any other country or to interfere in controversies between nations, whether members of the League or not, under the provisions of Article 10, or to employ the military or naval forces of the United States under any article of the treaty for any purpose, unless in any particular case the Congress, which under the Constitution has the sole power to declare war or authorise the employment of the military or naval forces of the country, shall by act or joint resolution so provide. To me, there doesn't seem to be very much room for manoeuvre here. The final decision rested with Congress, and any question of obligation to protect or defend nations which came under attack was declared to be removed. Yet, having said all that, I want you to consider another potential motive for Lodge's opposition to Article 10, which I believe is worth looking at too. Remember my mention of neorealism earlier on? Neorealism essentially stipulates that every state looked out for its own interests, and did not go above and beyond the call of duty for the interests of another. It's like the more academic sequel to Bismarck's Realpolitik. Considering this, it is worth asking the question, as the historian James Hughes Jr. does, of what if Lodge opposed Article 10, not because he wanted to weaken the League, but because he believed that agreeing to Article 10 would make the League of Nations be weakened itself. How does that make sense, you may be wondering, and how could approving of the central tenet of the League thereby weaken the League in the process? Well, Lodge's reasoning was based in neorealism, though neither Lodge nor the historian James Hughes called it that. Remember what I just said, neorealism essentially declared that it was every state for itself, and where this was relevant to Article 10 was the fact that in this state of affairs, there was simply no way that states would rush to defend another state when the act of saving or defending it would grant no net benefits to the saver or defender. Lodge also focused on the public opinion aspect, reasoning that the American public would never allow their boys to be sent to foreign lands to fight in unpopular wars, simply because the League said so. This failure to intervene would thereby discredit the League, and significantly damage its potential use, causing it, in the end, to fail. As Lodge expressed in a letter to Elihu Root in late June 1919, If we agree to this article, it is extremely probable that we will be unable to keep our agreement. Making war nowadays depends upon the genuine sympathy of the peoples of the country, 
at the time when the war has to be carried on. The people of the United States certainly will not be willing 10 or 20 years hence to send their young men to distant parts of the world to fight for causes in which they may not believe or in which they have little or no interest. If that is the attitude of the people when we are hereafter called upon to wage war under Article 10, no general indefinite agreement made years before then will make them disposed to fight and we shall be in the worst possible position for having made an agreement and not keeping it. James Hughes Jr. makes the useful point that Lodge was not the only figure to make this argument. Sir Robert Borden, the Canadian Premier, wanted to remove Article 10 altogether from the Covenant of the League, while Sir Robert Cecil, Britain's foremost League supporter, wanted to remove the words and preserve as against foreign aggression from the first sentence of Article 10, so that instead of a call for collective security, it simply called on member states to respect each other's territorial integrity. If we talk about Lodge changing his mind and approaching the issue from a partisan perspective, then we must denote that he had displayed a degree of consistency in this regard, when he had written to his good friend Roosevelt in 1912, expressing the view that No greater disaster could befall the cause of peace than to make a promise in a treaty designed to promote peace, which we know when we will make it, it will not be kept in certain contingencies. I will not go just as far as I can in promoting peace. I will go just as far as I can in promoting peace, but I will not retard the cause of peace by promoting on paper what I know cannot be performed in action. Thus it could be said that Lodge's aversion to overtly idealistic foreign policy concepts had its roots in neorealism and the pre-war era, and did not change as abruptly as we might have expected. More relevantly, when discussing the then-emerging Paris Peace Conference in late 1918, Lodge expressed his opinion on its strengths but he warned that realism must rule the decisions which were made. He said, They have one very great advantage. Everyone agrees with them. They have one very great disadvantage. They lead nowhere except into a pathless jungle of words. The mighty questions which confront us cannot be settled or even intelligently dealt with by words and phrases. We must deal with human nature as it is and not as it should be. If we are to convert ideas into reality. So, which view of Henry Cabot Lodge is the truth? Was Lodge's objection to Article 10 based on its impossible application genuine, or was it merely window dressing? The answer is, once again, that it very much depends upon your interpretation of the man and his motives, but it is undeniable that we cannot understand him without first understanding who he was before the war and what he stood for during its tenure. To offer my own interpretation, I would stick to my earlier judgment on Lodge's partisan nature, but as I said, partisanship does not wholly explain Lodge's actions, so I would like to bolster this with an additional note. In 1919, Henry Cabot Lodge was a 69-year-old Republican senator and career politician who had changed his mind and vented his spleen on numerous occasions. Was he a cardboard cutout, dyed-in-the-wool anti-Wilsonian Republican, determined to oppose everything which fell from the president's mouth? Perhaps he was, to some extent, and perhaps he did put party before League in this debate. It is impossible to remove party politics from the equation, especially considering the legitimate concerns which the Republicans had that the Democrats, triumphant following the war, might explode in popularity if they also won the peace. Lodge was also, by 1919, a master of parliamentary technique, and it is reasonable to suggest that nobody knew better than he did how to manipulate or make use of Congress to defeat the League 
without heaping ignominy upon himself or his party's record. We should not eliminate the possibility that the historical record is clouded in terms of Lodge's motives, because Lodge wanted it to be that way. The historian Walter Johnson captured the dilemma regarding Lodge's character, that as much as we know about him, there remains a great deal which we still do not know. Johnson wrote, Just what the role that Henry Cabot Lodge was playing in these months and those to come is not entirely clear. His apologists claim that he was honestly for a League of Nations, with reservations. There is evidence, however, to demonstrate that he was out to kill the League under any circumstances, and that he considered the best way to accomplish this was through attaching reservations to the Covenant. Lodge was a partisan Republican, willing to sacrifice ideals or anything else to party loyalty. From 1893 to 1924, as a member of the Senate, he never departed from strict party regularity. In addition to party regularity, he hated Woodrow Wilson. Until Wilson's entrance into politics, Lodge had been known as the Scholar in Politics, but this title, probably much to the bitterness of Lodge, then passed to Wilson. According to the estimate of one Nicholas Murray Butler, the figure that made the least appeal throughout all these years was that of Henry Cabot Lodge. He was able, vain, intensely egotistical, narrow-minded, dogmatic, and provincial. Notwithstanding his clearly partisan motives, we also cannot ignore the fact that Lodge had genuine concerns about the sustainability of an organisation which committed to always intervene in every dispute across the world at all times. But this did not mean he rejected the idea of a league which upheld peace as its key aim. These concerns had been expressed even before Wilson became president, and Lodge's adoption of what could be viewed as the principles of neorealism tell an important story all by themselves. As I usually do when I make these judgments of a person's character, I'm going to pick from both debates, rather than place poor old Henry Cabot Lodge in a particular box. He was a partisan Republican for sure, but he was also a neorealist, and I would argue that these character traits fit together quite well, and that each quality informed and complemented the other. It was convenient, for instance, that Lodge never seemed to believe wholeheartedly in the premise of collective security, because this made it easier to argue against the League with his party's interests in mind later on. It is also fortunate that Lodge's view of international relations did not wholly gel with those of his nemesis, Woodrow Wilson. We do not have to follow the logic which dictates that Lodge completely changed his mind to spite or politically wound Wilson. We could instead adhere to the idea which suggests that Lodge always felt a certain way towards institutions like the League, and as the years progressed, what positive feelings he did have for institutions like the League were reduced and replaced with the more extreme ends of his true beliefs, those being first, opposition to an unrealistic article, and second, the unconditional support of his party's interests and future in the 1920 elections. I feel we cannot discount Lodge's earlier support for a League, which he would probably have continued had Wilson not won his second term. Yet at the same time, it is unlikely that, whoever the president was, Lodge would have supported an article which compelled America to intervene in every war at every time, and it is also possible that a different president would not have sought such an article in the first place. If I had to measure it then, to be all mathematical for a minute, I'd say that Lodge was about 80% motivated by partisanship, 20% motivated by his perspectives on international relations.
To this we can add another point, that Lodge was unfortunately correct in his assumption that the members of the League would not respect Article 10 and would not intervene wholeheartedly in a collective security action. As the tragic history of the League of Nations demonstrated, time and time again the members failed to intervene when the security of another of its members was threatened. Lodge was also correct in that the failure of its members to adhere to Article 10 represented a stain on the League's reputation and collective morale, as belief in the promise of the League began to decline just as the world became more hostile and extreme. Lodge's predictions, gloomy as they were, rang true, but this does not mean that the man was without fault in his partisan policy, nor does it mean that Wilson should not have tried harder himself to meet his detested rival halfway. The problem was precisely that, though. American politics was so polarised in 1919, and the leading lights of both parties were so bitterly hostile towards one another that it remains difficult to get to the bottom of things even a century later. We have done our best in this episode, but we have not seen the last either of the American political divide or of Henry Cabot Lodge just yet. One of the most important takeaways from this episode in Wilson's treaty fight is that nagging fact which tells us that the fight was not yet over. As we've referenced multiple times, it was not until the Senate voted against ratifying the Treaty of Versailles in March 1920 that the League was truly sunk. Until that date, Wilson fought tooth and nail for its acceptance, infamously succumbing to a stroke in early October 1919 and remaining in poor health for the rest of his life. The toll of creating the Treaty of Versailles, then recreating the fight for the League in Paris, back home in Washington, understandably was too much to bear for Wilson, and it is a tragic fact of the era that after all his work, he lived to see this life's work end in heartache and failure. But not yet. By early March, signified most strikingly in the round robin which Lodge had circulated, Wilson had been informed of the opposition of the Senate. And Wilson knew that Lodge led the way in this opposition, but everything was not doomed because of this fact. There remained much to do in Paris, and in the meantime, it was by no means guaranteed that those fellow ideologues of Wilson's would not work to change Lodge's mind. As he had done before, Wilson dared to dream. But this time, upon his return to Paris, he was more vulnerable and much less popular than he had been among the peoples of Europe.